0: Welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. I'm Georgia. I'm Jessica. And with us today is Richard Gibson. Hello. Richard, hi, welcome. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. So could you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, how you came to be here at Manchester, what year of your PhD you're in? Okay.
1: I have no idea how I've ended up here, to be honest. (laughs) It's, It's one of those things that I'm constantly sort of pinching myself and going, I'm sure this is not what... 10-year-old me had as uh, sort of a goal in life. So how did I get here? Uh, I started off way littler in in my 20s. I wanted to be a zookeeper. So I trained to do that, but then I realized I hated it. So sort of left my childhood dream behind and then didn't know what I was doing with my life. And much like everyone sort of in their early 20s who doesn't know what they're going to do with their life, I went to university uh, and did my undergrad in philosophy at the University of the West of England, which is down in Bristol. I was all right. Did okay at that. So, and I thought, I'll okay, go back to uni because I don't know what I'm doing again. Went to King's College London, did all right there. And then two years later, once again, thought, I'm, I'm not sure what's happening. <laughs> I got accepted to do a PhD here at, at Manchester over in the law school. That's mate. I mean,
2: I'm really interested in the zookeeper. I, know, I feel like most, <laughs> most of us were at one point like, I'm just going to be a zookeeper. And you actually did it. (laughs) Yeah, it's not all it's cracked up to be. I imagine there's a lot of poo involved.
0: That is why it's not all it's cracked up to be. (laughs) There's
2: a poo in lots of counting animals. It always seems like that's the only time the zoo's in the news is when it's like they're counting all the animals for the year.
1: (laughs) And it doesn't match up. (laughs) There should be four more and they're not here. There
2: should be four more tigers (laughs) and they're not here.
1: Depending on the animal, I think I there's, there's say, a there's a variance. It's allowed. okay
0: to be out by four bats. It's not yeah. okay to be out by four tigers. It's when you're out and it's like well, we have twice as many animals as we thought we had. And yeah. <laughs> um, so, what's your research about?
1: So, in sort of a nutshell, I look at the question of if you wanted to cut off your leg simply because you wanted to, what what is there to stop you doing it? So sort of like a a social and a legal and mostly an ethical viewpoint of
2: that. So I was speaking about this with a friend already because I was quite interested in Mm -hmm. this idea of kind of elective amputation. Elective amputation. Are you looking at people who are in pain and want to amputate? No. No, so
1: so it is essentially if you just identify as a disabled person in the body of a non-disabled person and you want to bar phrase transition from one to the other. Why should you not be allowed or what argument is there to allow you? Um, So most of the time people say they suffer because their identity doesn't match the physical body they're in and that's a motivation to allow these to go ahead because it's a therapeutic treatment much like a bunch of other surgeries.
0: And this is I suppose that we are specifically talking, you said, you used the expression before why shouldn't you cut off your leg but we're not talking about why shouldn't you cut off your own leg so much mm. as why shouldn't someone cut off your leg for you? Yes.
1: Yeah, I I tend to phrase it like that just to be a bit controversial. Yeah, I imagine just get it in my head that sort of someone's sitting
2: in their bedroom, like, cutting off their <laughs>
1: leg, but no, it's kind of, yeah. The, one of the sort of th- hooks of this that really gets people interested is that people do do it to themselves. <clears throat> if they don't have if you know surgery at a hospital is ruled out people will either cut off a leg themselves or damage their leg so badly that when they turn up to hospital a surgeon has, <laughs> to, do has to do it right. or the classic going going onto the black market and trying to find a, a dodgy back alley surgeon
2: i'm fascinated i feel like i have like a thousand <laughs> questions but i don't really know where to start mm-hmm. so Well, I will start with, how did you
0: find this as a topic? (laughs) What brought you to this?
1: So, it was part of my master's, um, sort of one of the sessions they did in, in bioethics was on extreme body modification. And this was sort of one of the things that cropped up there. And up until that point, I'd always been really interested in sort of questions around human enhancement. So, intervening in in someone's body, in say a physical, or mental capacities, uh, using technology or drugs or what have you,
0: sort of cyberpunk question. Yeah, yeah. Mm.
1: To to you know improve their body, uh, make them stronger or faster or smarter or what, what, whatever metric you want to use. But when I came across this subject, it really turned on its head this idea about how do we define enhancement? Because the people receiving these amputations would consider themselves enhanced in, in a sort of a, a well-being way they feel better than they did before mm. but by all sort of contemporary standards we consider them less able you know, disabled and it's just that juxtaposition between how they feel in and of themselves and how society values their body mm. that really just got me hooked and I had the, the same thing you do where suddenly questions just kept falling into my head and I couldn't answer them quick enough, so I thought I'd get paid to, <laughs> to do it. Yeah, like all of yeah. us,
2: right? Yeah. I think that's like the semiotics of well-being. It's I mean, we talk about it in terms of like healthy food. Or whatever. Mm-hmm. What, what is healthy food? Is it healthy if it makes you feel better? And that I guess it's the same with enhanced. Are they enhancing their bodies by yeah mm. amputating themselves?
0: How? What sort of is your approach, are you coming at this from quite a, a theoretical approach or are you dealing with people who have had this experience, mm-hmm. people who want to and have been denied? What's
1: So it's pretty much all theory, because um, my background is in philosophy, mm-hmm. it's just a lot easier than trying to branch out and do surveys and talk to people and all that jazz. Um, I'd love to do that part and do all the empirical research, but it's a very rare condition. There aren't many cases in the UK,
2: mm.
1: and trying to get funding to fly up to America repeatedly is probably not going to happen. So mm. that would be the postdoc. Yeah,
2: maybe. yeah. So are you finding in America it's, it's slightly more common. Yeah,
1: I don't. I doubt it's because there are more cases there than there are anyone else in the world. I suspect it's just that they get reported there more mm. often because there are cases in China and Japan. So it doesn't really seem to be like located to a, a specific sort of uh, environment or cultural mm. uh, sort of in- indignation.
0: Yeah, it's perhaps a combination of a large population and then a population with kind of particular relationship to the body mm-hmm. in terms of how publicly owned your body is how how open your body is and how open to discussion people are about such things. I guess there's also, there's a lot of other big sort of body and body modification adjacent conversations happening yeah. at the moment. So controversial question. Do you see your work fitting into the sort of bigger trans and body modification mm-hmm. sort of debates?
1: so the trans one is a very tricky question yeah or comparison. i imagine. so i'm trying to avoid doing it too much but that's in a way difficult because a lot of the language that's used to describe the, the specific conditions mm. i look at have on purposely been transported over as a means to try and import some of the uh,
0: Sort of borrow some legitimacy. Yes,
1: borrow the legitimacy that the, uh, the the trans community has been able to build up build up over the past several decades.
0: Yeah, I noticed you using words like people who identify mm. and yeah. things, and I just think that's such an. I, it's hard to understand why that feels. Like strange language to use when it we've become quite comfortable with it in other contexts.
2: Well, yes. Yeah, I mean, when you said ser- when you started talking about the trans cultural yeah. language, also transracialism mm-hmm. as well, mm. which is like a new thing that even undergrad students are now starting to talk about as well now, and part of like that development of what it means to be trans anything. Yeah, um, I think yes, yeah, fascinating. I'd never heard of this. What would you have? You got? Do you use any sort of? terminology to describe kind of this your kind of subject of people who identify as a
1: yeah so there's generally sort of major terms so the first is wannabes who are people who want to transition from Mm. being able-bodied to disabled-bodied or impaired wannabes that's interesting Mm. Mm. wannabes pretenders so people who pretend that they are uh, they have had an amputation or whatever, so they will bind their leg up and they'll use wheelchairs to go about their daily business. But they they are medically perfectly able bodied.
2: Mm. So with your subjects, with the with the you know the people who you would be I don't say people, but you know I know it's coming from a th- philosophical standpoint. Mm-hmm. But do they? Cont- it's so hard because when you were saying they bind themselves you know to fit or sit in a chair do they see themselves or do they feel like they can't walk or that is the that is what they want to do are are they are they open about the fact that they can walk but choose not to or do they feel themselves to be disabled
1: they i mean they're perfectly aware that Mm. their limb is fine they can walk what they're doing can be seen as a bit Uh, I guess for lack of a better phrase, perverse by some people pretending to be disabled when you're not. Yeah. But they will often do it as a means of alleviating the suffering that they have by experiencing their daily life as a person who has no impairments, no mobility issues. So it's commonly seen as a form of like an outlet, like some way to relieve the pressure and to at least pretend to be in the body in which they wish to be in. Mm. Um, So quite often, once again, borrowing from uh, terminology from the trans debate, they'll try and pass as Mm. a disabled person. So they will travel to a different city where no one's going to know them, get in their chair and go about just the day like that, and then get back to their car, put it all away and drive back. But they're fully aware this is kind of a taboo thing to do, and they'll hide it from their families Mm. for years, decades.
0: Yeah, almost sort of the cross-dressing of uh, sort of physical ability as as opposed to sort of, as you were saying, people who seek more of a medical intervention just to sort of put it on for a while and then go home. It's it's one of those things that's just so hard to... It's mm. so
2: far outside of one's daily experience that it's really hard to... Yeah, but I can imagine that it, it's not as, like, uncommon... As, as you think, well, I, I was thinking in terms of people who might be in some sort of kind of chronic pain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are they included in these debates?
1: They're not. With no. chronic pain, there is still the question of, is this chronic pain being caused by some sort of medical condition? Um, but otherwise, than that, is their limb perfectly healthy?
2: Mm.
1: But you, it's much easier to understand why someone would want a, a limb amputated if... It was looked fairly normal by all tests. It was normal, except for the fact it was causing chronic pain. We'd quite mm. easily just go, okay, we well, you remove the limb. You remove the pain. Yeah, perfectly fine. But when it's perfectly normal and the suffering and pain that it's generating it is mental rather than physical, mm. it suddenly mm. becomes a lot harder to put yourself in that that headspace and that mindset. Mm. And it just goes against sort of the cultural zeitgeist of we should always be more abled than we were before we should run faster we should train harder we should Mm. try and make sure we're less of a burden on society and all that stuff
0: Mm. and a real a sort of primacy of the the sort of able body generally is you know it's there's a sort of normative body that all of us are supposed to adhere to and then Mm -hmm. the different ways in which you deviate from that normative body are if not punished they're not necessarily encouraged. Yeah. Mm. Well
1: is the the medicalization of the body and how we define normal. So I'm doing my PhD by publication so I've got to do like different papers mm. and then work them okay. together into my final thesis. Sure. Wow. And my first paper is on this idea about all well, if the m- normal body is what we call healthful, healthy what do we mean when we say the normal body what is it to be normal? Yeah. Is it just that Adhering to what is common, two arms, two legs, two eyes. What we consider statistically normal, is that the same as actually being healthy? Or mm. do we just assume that's a healthy body because that's what most people mm. have?
0: And it crosses over with so many different debates around our bodies and what we do with them mm. and and what they should look like and how they should behave. I wanted to ask about... Because what this makes me think about is... um munchausen mm-hmm. syndrome yeah about it's i suppose because of my own feelings and prejudices it's quite hard to imagine what's desirable about having less mobility mm-hmm. than i have now but i can imagine that one of the things that might be desirable about it is a kind of attention or a kind of willingness of mm. people to make allowances for you to notice you in a particular way yeah Is that something that sort of comes up in your understandings of it? It
1: does. It's something I'm trying to frame out in sort of the start because things become a lot more tricky when you're coming to questions about autonomy and whether someone can consent to the surgery in the first place. If you're then asking other questions about, well, are they only doing it because they have something like Munchausen's where they they just want to be cared for and attention seeking all the time.
0: Mm. And again, I mean, I assume that while that must account for, it, it could be, it could account for a non-zero number of cases, mm-hmm. it seems likely that, you know, we, what we know about Munchausen's is it tends to express in much less drastic ways, mm. right? Like it's just mm. sort of constant complaints that are hard to diagnose rather mm-hmm. than something
2: that's... As, as and maybe they don't ever that. really want to be diagnosed if it's if it's the process of being
0: Yeah, the, the medicalisation of it Absolutely yeah.
2: it's, it's, a,
1: it's a very extreme measure to go to if you've got something like munchausen, so there's a lot less drastic things to do than having a limb amputated and becoming impaired
2: What I wanted to ask was this idea of, like, if you were to get your leg amputated and you got a prosthetic mm-hmm. do you look at prosthetics, do you look at prosthetics as a more desirable form of leg, like a prosthetic mm. leg, is that something you've touched upon?
1: So, I'm working on something at the moment, I say I'm working on it, I've technically finished it, but I don't think it's good enough, so I'm still working on it, when it's probably It's never okay. going to be
2: good enough. It's never going to be good <laughs>
1: enough, It's whether it's you know, not as bad as as, mm. as needs be. But that looks at the impact of advanced prosthetics on, say, elective amputation, and just this question of, if you had a prosthetic that was as good as a biological limb, why couldn't you just have your biological limb amputated and have this put on? Mm-hmm. What does that mean for questions like, well, we can't make people disabled. Is that person disabled if their artificial limb is just, just as good as the, the one they had before?
0: Mm. And there's a, I mean, it does come very much back to the sort of the, the so-called cyberpunk implications of of body augmentation like that. What it makes me think of, this is going to seem like a real leap, but I was thinking about it, is you know army dogs Mm. they knock Mm. out all their real teeth and Mm -hmm. fit them with titanium teeth really? yeah so the dogs that they used when they were like (laughs) hunting bin laden (laughs) and stuff, the SEAL Team 6 dogs had all of their their like front canines forward were replaced with titanium teeth and uh, you know obviously it's a dog and they don't have to worry so much about consent or anything but there's no question there of like oh we'll just take out all the dog's fallible problem teeth and mm. at extreme expense replace them with teeth that won't break and that will do more damage and make the dog a more effective weapon like if we could replace sort of normal I'm doing air quotes legs mm-hmm. with better legs then yeah are we doing anything wrong S- this is what your thesis is
2: so yeah. probably
1: trying to I'm still trying <laughs> to get my head around the the titanium teeth <laughs> in dogs Yes.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, look look it up. It's. I believe you. Yeah. My
0: goodness. But it's. I mean, it's such a. I remember reading about it because it was. Yeah, it made the news at around the time of, uh, Bin Laden Mm -hmm. killing. Like of particular interest was the fact that it cost. It was some really large dollar amount to fit these dogs out with these teeth. Yeah. And so you know, was it? Was it worth it? Was it the right thing to do? Mm. But also because we don't worry so much about the autonomy of animal bodies. I don't think there was much discussion about whether it was ethical to do it to the dog.
1: If a creature (laughs) or a dog or an animal can't understand consent to a procedure, then there are questions about is it even able to give consent? Mm. Yeah. But then you should probably err on the we probably shouldn't do it.
2: Yeah. Maybe. 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 Um, Have you experienced, or not knew yourself, but have you come across kind of the anti-elective amputation Mm -hmm. side, yeah.
1: Yeah, so even though it wasn't my intention to do the PhD like this, I very much started on a focus of just, here are the arguments against providing these amputations, and here is a nice clean list of why all of these are wrong. So most of them will either be questions of autonomy, Mm -hmm. which is essentially, if someone wants a procedure like this, they're obviously mad, and if they're mad, they can't give consent and I've got a paper about why do we think they're mad do we think they're mad just because it's unusual Mm. if so, loads of stuff's mad you know, people who do sort of more conventional body modification like tongue splitting, that's very unusual, that's a bodily harm is that, can they give consent Mm. if not, why not, if they can alright, and then the other one is well we shouldn't make people disabled being disabled is an inherently pathological condition it's bad to be disabled Mm. because these procedures inevitably make people disabled we shouldn't be carrying them out and then again in sort of that hoity-toity philosopher way I'm going well what does it mean to be disabled Mm. and is it intrinsic that if you have a leg amputated you'll become
2: disabled and what does autonomy mean and what approach are we taking to autonomy and
0: and how okay is it that we sort of culturally do basically say being disabled is bad when obviously Mm -hmm. that's a, a thing that many people just live with and mm. get by with and those people probably the most qualified to speak on it would say actually it's not bad no. it's you know the yeah, the way so society is organized around me might not work as well as it does for someone else but mm-hmm. i'm not bad yeah and so have you
2: found come across d- disabled people being anti these yeah
1: it's one of the questions i get asked regularly at sort of conferences even at like parties and stuff when I start mm. talking to people about this is oh, what do pe- disabled people think about yeah. this? Sort of, what's the one message yes. that the, dis- the disabled community bring across? <laughs> yeah. yeah. What does a spokesperson say? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, there's going to be people for it and people against yeah. it because there's not a spokesperson it's not like they unionise and all come together <laughs> and then go right what's the what's the uh, the official message we're going with guys mm. so yeah there are people against it who say why would you want to do this I experience hardships in my life that I wouldn't if I didn't have whichever disability it is. But on the flip side, there's other people who say, like, if they're suffering as they are and transitioning to this other way of life means they're not suffering, where's, where's the mm-hmm. issue with that? Surely it's worse to force someone to live in a body that is causing them general chronic long-term harm, like, decades, Yeah. than it is just to be like, okay, well, we'll amputate your leg. What does that say for people with disabilities if we're, like, decades of suffering is a better alternative than living in a body
2: similar to yours. So it is very much an ethics PhD that you're yes. kind of dealing with. How do you, what sort of like methodology do you use?
1: Oh, I hate that question I so much.
2: <laughs> I, always having to ask it and yeah, answer it.
1: <laughs> I'm so confused by that. Like when people ask, like when I've got to write a methodology section, I'm just looking at it going, i read some books well, it's, and becau- I, it's I become I
2: such a thing in history as well like when i started my undergrad i never had to write about methodology and now it's like where's your methodology section mm-hmm. and i'm like i don't know i'm not a sociologist but everyone has to do it now so
1: yeah i originally started off with like a specific sort of ethical framework that I was going to use called principalism and sort of trying to balance different principles and come to some sort of conclusion at the end and it just hasn't happened <laughs> as i've gone through it's fallen by the wayside and i've just written my papers and sort of gone i don't i'm not entirely sure what my method has been i'm sure there's one there i'm sure there's there is a name for it if any of my uh, examiners are listening to this i have a great method and you will be amazed by <laughs> it but all i've done is just read work and think right. about it and go that doesn't seem right yeah. and here's the rush so your, your
2: sources are other philosophical texts
1: so i've or? used a lot of different stuff so there's been sort of what is commonly known as, like, bioethics okay. texts. Um, so, like, first-hand accounts and case studies, um, a lot of scientific, like, journals. That's cool. Um, for, like, the, the paper on uh, neuroprosthetics, there's been, like, technology and engineering and neurochemistry and all stuff that I'm not particularly affe with. Um, yeah, it's been very, sort of, dispersive. But at the heart of it is, is this, this bioethics philosophy approach that just seems to come like naturally to me now and I don't know when that happened (laughs) I remember trying really hard at my undergrad and now it's just happening now you can do
0: it yeah Yeah. it's part of the experience isn't it it's that kind of like creeping becoming if not
2: competent then more competent (laughs) yeah or like naturally knowing when you read people writing about like Selfhood or like all history for me, and then I realized oh, I can actually write this stuff now. And mm. I don't know when that happened, but it did. You're
1: slowly having to go to a dictionary every yeah. yeah. now <laughs> and to look and like, what the what does that word mean?
0: One of the things that we like to ask the guests on our podcast is if they have something funny or humorous or sort of light-hearted from their research to share with listeners.
1: I'm really struggling with this, which is quite depressing the more I think about it. Where were we in 20... Yeah, 2019, I went and did a conference in New Orleans. Um, which sounds great, but it was hot. It was... It didn't drop below 30 degrees the entire time I was there. Like, even at night.
0: Was it was It was <laughs> But awful. humid, right?
1: Yes. Oh, they, they can't... A weird fact about New Orleans, they can't bury their dead below ground because it's so moist. They don't decompose properly. Uh-huh. So they have. that's why they, like New Orleans Every is famous set. for its mausoleums and whatnot. Um, anyway, that's a side note. <laughs> um, so, yes, um, and I met some people there. Um, one day we were hiding in the Starbucks because they had air conditioning. <laughs> and we were like, oh, let's go for a... Let's go and explore the city a bit. There's nothing really on at the conference that anyone's particularly interested in. So we'll go out and we'll we'll have a look at New Orleans. It smelled really bad, because New Orleans is a bit of a party city. And there was just vomit in the streets at that time of day still. And it was just baking and boiling smell <laughs> oh awful. <my> God. <laughs> Again, another side note. Um, and we went to a sort of voodoo museum thing, because obviously voodoo's quite a big thing mm. in New Orleans. Or at least the touristy part mm. of it is. Um, and they had all the things you'd normally expect in the voodoo museum sort of shrunken heads and other little shrunken body parts and knickknacks and whatnot Um, but we decided we didn't want to go in so we then went to the museum of serial killers Mm. or something along those lines or the the New Orleans museum of murder or something like that and we thought oh it would be great no the new... new the New Orleans Museum of Death—that was it—and <laughs> we thought it would have stuff about how they can't bury their dead below ground and all these other sort of things about how they cope. But it was, in fact, just a museum of with of killers, and they had the weirdest stuff in there. Just like I think the the underwear Ted Bundy was wearing when he was executed, <laughs> and like loads of <laughs> loads of letters from oh the clown that was also a serial killer john wayne gacy that's the one they had stuff and, and just
2: like all this Not random that stuff <laughs> <laughs> that
1: was very quick um, fan <laughs> yeah. no. i'm still waiting for the funny part of the story to come in <laughs> there I, was a
2: clown
0: there was a clown
1: <laughs> which is normally terrifying but in this case even more so um and yeah we walked around and it wasn't what we expected so we left back out into the baking heat And we just started having to jump from shadow to shadow because all three of us were getting really sunburnt. None of us wore any sun cream because we're idiots. (laughs) Um, So we hid in the reception of the National Butterfly Museum for 20 minutes and the security kept looking at us. Like, are you coming in or are you just standing there? And they eventually asked us to leave. And that is the least funny story I've ever (laughs) told that was meant to be funny. It's
2: travel. Travel conference yeah, story it's like a plat- my conference stories are not that fun
0: yeah, my conference stories are also not that fun, I feel like it's a great example of a story about a conference where there's nothing on, so you do yes. something else, yeah. I had a similar experience at the conference I went to in June, where I was kind of like well I've travelled halfway across the world for this I gave my paper yesterday I'm in one of the greatest cities in the world am I really going to go and watch someone else's papers? hmm nah like go to go to cool museums loiter at the butterfly museum.
1: space yeah. yeah oh it was wonderful i kind of wish we went in now but it was Something like $20, and ah. as much as I love butterflies, were well,
2: they live
1: butterflies? Oh, god, that would be terrible know, if they okay. were. Oh, uh, yeah, but I
2: thought they just, yeah, yeah, like, like pinned. Like, yeah, that's what I was imagining. Oh,
1: no, this was <laughs> they were all alive and they were flying around oh, my in, in the enclosures.
0: You would probably have, like, the humidity would have been off the charts. Yes, yeah, oh yeah. Oof, no. I, uh, yeah, when you're talking about it, it was flashing back to, uh, Going to Vietnam at the height of summer
2: and just like you walk for five minutes and your clothes are <laughs> soaked <dripping wet>. through. <laughs> you can, at that point you just can't do anything. Can yeah, you? it's the, just got to embrace
0: it. Yeah, the people who live there are just like it's not that
2: bad. <laughs> and I'm just like, like <laughs> I, I can't go on. <laughs> So,
0: Richard, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really interesting to talk about your research. I feel like we didn't e- even really get a chance to sort of scratch the surface I of it like in a 35-minute yeah. podcast. But it was um, it was really amazing yeah, to so hear about it. Is there anything that you'd like our listeners anything you want to plug or your social media or anything I keep, hey, where I, is your social media i'm gonna study you right
1: now oh that's exciting so it's um <laughs> at richard b gibson okay you can you can try and guess what the b stands for so that's brian. twitter brian i
0: thought brian. bioethics <laughs> richard bioethics Gibson. oh nominated, that's
1: nominated. that sounds terrible i really hope no one's assumed that oh they definitely have that's, uh, okay, so I'm, I'm going to try and ride that out. No, that's it. It's the only bit I've got to plug.
0: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Jess, thank you for hosting. Oh, thank you. And as always, don't tell your supervisor what you heard here today. What happens on the podcast stays on the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a podcast by and for the research students of the Faculty of Humanities at the University of Manchester. If you want to get in touch with us, you can reach us on Twitter, at podcast, or you can email us at NSFPPodcast at gmail.com. Our intro and outro music is Hat the Jazz by Twin Musicom.